Good morning, church family. Uh, my name is Domfuti Skwekwe. I am married to Simpiwe Skwekwe, and I am part of the Bonavelli Life Group, led by Lee Martin. We meet every Wednesday, so um, if you'd like to meet with us, then you are welcome. I'll be doing the Bible reading this morning, and it's taken from Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, to chapter 16, verse 12, and it reads as follows. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you, that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, With that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. 
Exodus 16, verse 35 to 17, verses 7. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandments of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Herod, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Mesa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Tombi, for that reading. It was a long reading. Thanks for blessing us in that way. And thanks to Pum for the prayer earlier. Uh, Folks, Pum is our rector's warden. He's on the council. I mention that because it's important for, for all of us to know who our leaders are. So Pum is the custodian of our suggestion box. Uh, any suggestions, especially complaints, really difficult problems, Pum is your man. Let me open in a word of prayer for us uh, before we come to this really rich and challenging passage. Uh, Father, once again, we come to you uh, not, not trusting in our own worthiness, not trusting in our own righteousness, trusting completely in your character, which is always to have mercy. We praise you for that, Lord, that you are so kind to us, uh, that you give good gifts to those who do not deserve it. And so we pray that you will give us the gift of yourself this morning. Open our eyes, Lord. Give us ears to hear. Soften our hearts. Uh, Father, we, we don't want to leave here with, with more information about the Bible. We want to leave here having had an encounter with the Lord, having heard the word of the Lord, and truly having heard it, uh, please will you change us? And we pray this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. If, uh, if you've been with us through our Exodus series, both last year and as we began again last week, I hope it's, I hope it's becoming clear to you that the Christian life has an Exodus shape to it has an exodus shape to it. It moves from slavery in Egypt, through the water, through the wilderness, to the promised land. It moves from slavery to sin, through the blood of Jesus and the baptism of the Spirit, into the long walk to freedom, with eternity waiting on the other side. From Egypt, 
through the water, through the wilderness, to the promised land. The Christian life has an exodus shape to it. That means that right now, most of us sitting here this morning are somewhere between the Red Sea and the promised land. We are in the wilderness. This life is a walk through the desert. And the desert is a dangerous place. It's a place of both opportunity, but also very real threat. The way the Bible describes it is that the desert is a place of testing. Testing. What does that mean? How do we experience it? Well, as we journey with Israel through the wilderness, we're going to discover three truths, at least these three truths about testing. We test the Lord. The Lord tests us and how to pass the test. Those three things. We test the Lord. The Lord tests us and how to pass the test. We test the Lord. Let's just back it up a little bit. Uh, Israel have witnessed ten miraculous judgments on Egypt. So they've seen the Nile turn to blood. They've seen frogs and flies and locusts overrun the people of Egypt. They have seen lightning on the inside of hail. They have seen darkness cover the land. They've seen the death of the firstborn, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the slave girl who works at the handmill. They've seen all of that. And they've been spared all of that by the blood of the Lamb. They've been liberated. They walk out of Egypt with Egyptian converts in their midst and Egyptian gold in their bags. The Lord led them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Ten times he demonstrated his unrivaled power over the gods of Egypt and over Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and so he regretted letting the people go, and he pursued them. And then this, if you can have your Bibles open, we are going to be again dancing around Exodus 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So, so please have your Bibles open and go with me. Exodus 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified. They cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die in the desert? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the desert. They haven't even escaped. They haven't even left yet. And they want to turn back. They have in them what we might describe as a spirit of grumbling. But the Lord, the Lord is patient and kind. He works a deliverance so spectacular that it looks like something, it looks a little bit like the creation of the world. You remember that from last week. We dealt with that at length last week. He separates light from darkness. He separates the waters from the waters so that dry land may appear and the people walk through on dry land. It's a new creation. And so, of course, they rejoice. They worship the Lord in song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. 
my father's God and I will exalt him. Three days. That's all it took. Three days for that exalted worship to turn to grumbling. Three days. Exodus fifteen twenty two. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. They went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah, which means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? And when you hear the word wilderness in these five chapters, when you hear the word wilderness, look out for the word grumbling. They tend to go hand in hand in the life of God's people. Those two words, wilderness and grumbling. The water is bitter, and so are the hearts of Israel. And once again, the Lord works nothing but an act of pure grace and goodness. And he heals the water. Not only that, he then leads them on to Elam. And Elam, I guess it's no accident that the the word sounds similar. Elam is a reminder of Eden. It's a small foretaste of the promised land. Because where there was no water, now there are 12 natural springs of the sweetest water, the most abundant water, one for each of the tribes of Israel. It's a wonderful reminder of God's determination to bless his people in spite of his people and their bitterness and their grumbling. Of course, the people themselves have short memories. They have desert amnesia. As soon as they start moving again, they forget where they've come from and how they got there. Exodus 16 verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The whole congregation came to the wilderness. And the whole congregation grumbled. They seemed to go hand in hand. This time it's hunger. Once again the Lord responds with nothing but grace. He rains bread from heaven. Is that going to be enough? Has he now proved himself to them? How are they going to respond? Well, I'm sure by Ntombi's reading, you have guessed how they're going to respond. Listen out for our two words again. Exodus 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? 
But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Was it to kill, our, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? In the wilderness, God's people test the Lord. How? With grumbling. That's the essence of the test, grumbling. Grumbling says to God over and over and over again, prove yourself. Prove yourself. Grumbling is never satisfied. It's a constant scathing accusation. Are there not enough graves in Egypt that you bring us out here into this wilderness to perish? Can you hear the accusation? Why did you bring us out here? Was it to kill us? To kill our children? To kill our livestock? It was better in Egypt. Grumbling is an accusation. It scrutinizes God. It puts him on trial. It's a prosecution. What do you have to say for yourself? Brothers and sisters, we live this side of the cross. That means the Passover is ours. The Red Sea is ours. The healing of the water is ours. The bread from heaven is ours. But more than any of that, the crucified king is ours. God has given us himself. There's nothing more to give. And there's nothing more to receive. If you have God, Father, Son, and Spirit, you have everything. Do you see the tragedy of our grumbling? If you stop to think about it and grasp what the nature of it, it's enough to bring you to tears. And oh, how we grumble. Never mind grumbling over the necessities of life like food and drink. We grumble over politics. We grumble over potholes. We grumble over load shedding and state capture. We grumble about finances. We grumble about health. We grumble about the good gifts that God has given us. Our husbands, our wives, our friends, our colleagues, our jobs. We even grumble about people who grumble. We grumble. Every time we do, we are bringing an accusation against God. Are you with us or not? And we bring that accusation in the shadow of the cross. It's as if we stand at the foot of the cross and we look up into the face of Jesus, the crucified king, hanging there in our place, we look up at him and we say, prove yourself. Prove your love for us. Can you imagine? Now, of course, there's room to bring our concerns and our sorrows and our fears and our questions and our doubts to the Lord. Of course, there's room for that. He invites us to. He's our father. He wants to hear from his children. But that's not grumbling. The difference is the spirit of accusation. 
the difference is the petulant demand that says, I deserve better. Are you going to give me what I want or not? You say you love me, prove it. And we lay those accusations, we make those demands in the shadow of the cross. We do it every time we grumble. And not only is grumbling the most heinous offense against the love of God, it's also one of the great dangers of the wilderness, the great dangers of life in the desert, the great dangers of the Christian life. Why? Three reasons. Let me just give you three. Grumbling hardens your heart. It infects others. And it can even make you lose your way. In Psalm 95, we have this wonderful summary and warning. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. Testing the Lord, putting him on trial, can harden your heart. Now in the story of Exodus so far, whose heart is hard? Who's been testing the Lord? Someone brave enough to say it out loud. Pharaoh. Rafa, was that you? That's why he's in the front row, people. Pay attention. It's Pharaoh. Pharaoh has tested the Lord ten times. And with each test, what happened? His heart grew harder. We know how it ended for Pharaoh. The writer to the Hebrews puts that same warning to New Covenant believers, to us. This is what he says, See to it, brothers and sisters, watch out that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Grumbling is a sure sign of unbelief, and it hardens your heart. Don't Flirt with grumbling. Hardness of heart is a fatal condition. Cardiac sclerosis is terminal. Grumbling is also dangerous because it's so infectious. Have you noticed? It's no fun to grumble alone. Have you noticed that? Grumbling is a team sport. And it's especially popular amongst older men. I don't know if you've noticed that. Now, here's some gross generalizations for you. If, if gossip is a problem amongst women, well, for men, it's grumbling. And the wives are applying a sharp elbow into the ribcage of the husbands. But, but when a bunch of older men get together, grumbling is not far behind, is it? It's not far behind. And the theme is always the same, though the topics may vary. The theme's always the same. The theme is this. Things were better in our day. There's a saying among sportsmen, the older you get, the better you once were. And that's not just true of sportsmen, is it? It's true of men in general. Gents are making light of it, but we have to fight this thing. We have to fight it because it is so dangerous. 
And of course, it applies to all of us. The warning applies to all of us, not just older men. When you grumble, not, and this is the perverse nature of this thing, when you grumble, not only are you hardening your own heart, you are hardening the hearts of those around you. You are tempting them to turn to God and say, in the shadow of the cross, oh, you love us, do you? Prove it. And prove it in the way that we prefer. Grumbling is dangerous. So very dangerous. Because it hardens your heart. And it infects others around you. And finally, it can even make you lose your way. What's the difference between a pilgrim and a wanderer? Have you thought about that? What's the difference between a pilgrim and a wanderer? Well, a pilgrim has direction. A pilgrim has destination. A wanderer has neither. Both are in the wilderness. But the pilgrim is going somewhere. The pilgrim is just passing through. The pilgrim is en route to better things. The wanderer just wanders. Wanders around muttering to himself. When you grumble, you have lost sight of your beginnings. The Lord's gracious, loving, saving work in your life. And you've lost sight of your destination. Eternity with him and his people. In the eternal bond of love. The more you grumble the more you harden your heart, the less inclined you are to trust him. And so the more you grumble. Do you see? It's a vicious downward spiral. It spirals downward to the point where you can, you can actually become totally detached from your destination. You're just wandering around aimlessly in the wilderness. Lost in the desert. That's dangerous. Lost, dislocated, disoriented, purposeless, without direction, without destination, like so many wilderness wanderers. Like Cain, who wandered east of Eden. Like those who built the Tower of Babel and were scattered over the face of the earth, homeless, rootless, purposeless, without direction. Like Israel themselves, who as we read the story, go on to test the Lord ten times, in the wilderness. Just like Pharaoh tested the Lord ten times. God's own people test him ten times in the wilderness. They keep testing him until their hearts are so hard that they break loose of their final destination. They wander that wilderness for 40 years. That whole generation dies in the desert. Where did that begin? In a spirit of grumbling. My brothers and sisters, we have to stop grumbling. When we grumble, we, we test the Lord. Only to find out that in fact, he's testing us. And that's the second thing we're going to consider. The Lord tests us. Exodus 13 verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest this people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. 
by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. You see, when the Lord liberates Israel from slavery in Egypt, he knows they're not ready for freedom. He knows they, at the first sign of trouble, they are going to turn and run straight back to Egypt. Because it's one thing to take the slave out of Egypt. It's another thing entirely to take Egypt out of the slave. They would need to learn to trust him and him alone. That's what the wilderness was for. After the bitterness of Mara, Exodus 15 verse 25, Moses cries to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule and there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in my eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. And again, after Elam, Exodus 16 verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Now, what's the meaning of this? What's the meaning of this raining bread from heaven and this gathering protocol? The people must gather food provided by God, but they must only gather enough for today, for one day. And if they gather more... It rots. What's the point? What's the nature of this test? The test is this. Will you trust me for today? We spoke about this at length last week. We face the same test. The Lord Jesus asks the very same thing of us. Trust me for today. He doesn't ask us to have enough faith for a lifetime. He just asks us to have enough faith for today. And in fact, this is so essential to the Christian pilgrimage that he's actually built it into the prayer. It's right at the heart of the prayer that he gives to his disciples. You know the line? Give us this day our daily bread. In other words, help us to trust you for today. And a little bit later on in that same sermon, it's, it's the same Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Trust me for today. That is the claim that the Lord Jesus lays on our lives. That's the test. That's all it is. Today. Just for today. And yet we find it so very hard, don't we? Our grumbling is a sure sign we are failing the test. So how do we stop grumbling and start trusting the Lord for today? How are we going to pass the test? That's the third thing we want to look into, how to pass the test. What does it take? Who gets the pass mark? Well, I hope it's obvious that there's only one who passes the test. 
And that's the Lord Jesus himself. Maybe it isn't so obvious just how successful he is, just how complete and far-reaching and extensive his victory is. Because he passes our test, but he also passes God's test. He is both the faithful provider and the faithful Israelite at the same time. He fulfills the covenant between God and Israel from both sides. He is both faithful God and faithful man. Let's take a long look at Jesus to see how how this plays out. We want to take a long look at him. There's really nothing better we could do with the time that's available to us. So we're going to look at Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus the bread and the water, and Jesus the rock. After his baptism, after he, like Israel, passed through the waters, and then, like Israel, he was thrust into the wilderness. So you remember, Israel passed through the waters, through the Red Sea, and immediately they are thrust into the wilderness. So it was for Jesus. He passes through baptism, and he's immediately thrust into the wilderness. Like Israel, in the wilderness, he was tested. Like Israel, in the wilderness, he was hungry and thirsty. What happened in his case? When the tempter came to him and tempted him, how did he respond? Do you remember his words? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And when he had said these things, the devil left him. Jesus was the faithful Israelite. Where Israel failed, where we fail, he trusted his father. On the day of testing, he trusted his father. He trusted his father for today. Now, just as an aside, it's worth noticing how he trusted his father. How did he do it? How did, how did he face this temptation? In the moment of temptation, what did he do? He remembered the promises of God from his word. In the face of temptation, the word of God was his weapon and his shield. Now, if that's true of the Lord Jesus, how much more should it be true of us? For that to be the case, for us to be ready on the day of temptation, when the day of temptation arrives, when the tempter arrives knocking at our door, We need to be in the Word. We need to be saturated in the Word. The Word needs to be in our bloodstream. It needs to be on the tips of our tongues and at our fingertips. And for that to be the case, we need to be in the Word daily. We have to be preparing ourselves for the day of temptation. It's no good on the day of temptation to be looking in the index, flipping through the concordance. It's too late. Do you see? We need to be in the Word. Why would we not be in the Word? That wasn't the last time Jesus was in the wilderness. Later on in his ministry, a large crowd gathers to him in the wilderness. They were hungry, and so he fed them with what can only be described as bread from heaven. And then he interprets the miracle for them like this. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that 
one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is the faithful man, but he's also the faithful God, the faithful provider, the one who provides God's provision for his people in the wilderness. God is the great provider to those making their way through the wilderness of this life, and his greatest provision to us is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else that the Lord gives can keep you from death, but he can. Nothing else that the Lord gives can give you the gift of eternal life, but he can. The Lord Jesus is the only gift that will never perish or fade or spoil or rot. You can never gather too much of him. He's the faithful Israelite. He's the faithful provider. He passes both tests. But there's even more. As you read through the wilderness account in Exodus 14, 15, 16, 17, you left asking, who's testing who? Who exactly is on trial here? And when we see the faithfulness of God and the grumbling of Israel, there's no doubt about who should be on trial. Israel should be on trial. It's emphatic. But then look again at this. Go with me to Exodus 17, verse 3. Look at this with me. But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what should I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people shall drink. And Moses did so. In the sight of the elders of Israel. It's a trial scene. The people place yet another accusation against the Lord through their grumbling. And so what does he do? He arranges the courtroom. He faces his accusers. The Israel line up on one side, the Lord on the other side, he faces his accusers. And then Moses walks between them with his staff, which we know is the instrument of judgment. Remember, he struck the Nile with that staff. It's an instrument of judgment. He walks between them, carrying the instrument of judgment in his hand, and he strikes the guilty party. He strikes Israel. No, he doesn't. He strikes the rock upon which the Lord was standing. Now listen to this. 1 Corinthians 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. You see, not only 
does Jesus pass the test from all sides. But he deals with our failure to pass the test as well. Not only is he faithful, but he takes the judgment for our unfaithfulness and our grumbling on himself. So how do we pass the test? We don't. But Jesus does. And so we feed on him in our hearts. We drink deep of the living water that is Christ. We're going to do that in a moment when we come to the Lord's table. We fix our eyes on him as the author and perfecter of our faith. He was lost in the wilderness so that we might enter the promised land. He was crucified outside the city so that we can make our home in the new Jerusalem. The more we look to him, the more we depend on him, the more we feed on him in our hearts with thanksgiving, the more our grumbling will turn to thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is the mark of a true Christian. Looking at Jesus changes our perspective on everything else, even our hardships and our struggles. As C.S. Lewis put it, I believe in Christianity the way I believe in the sunrise, not only because I see it, but by it I see everything else, including my hardships and my struggles and my fears and my pain. Jesus passes every test and he deals with your failure and mine. You are with him. He is the way through the wilderness of this life. There is no other. So we are in the wilderness. We are headed for the promised land. We want to stop grumbling and start trusting. We want to maintain our direction we want to head for our destination. And so in all things, in all things, we cling to Christ. In all things. And thankfully, one of his many, many, many kindnesses to us as a people on pilgrimage, as a people walking through the wilderness of this life, one of his many kindnesses to us, one of the many ways in which he helps us is that we don't walk alone. We draw great courage from those who are around us on the journey, and especially from those who are ahead of us on the journey. And so that's where we're going to end. We're going to close with that. Uh, this is a letter written by Melvin Tinker at the very end of his journey. He is dying of pancreatic cancer, and he literally passed into the glories of eternity just a few days after he had written this letter. He, he was a wonderfully encouraging pilgrim. He was also a great friend to this church. Let me, let me read the letter, just a portion of it to you. The hardest part is the thought of separation from loved ones on earth, my dearest Heather especially, but my sons and wonderful grandchildren. Please continue to hold them up in the Savior's arms when I am gone. Philip, one of his sons, sent unto me this which is sublime. It is from a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Fathers and mothers, 
husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. The enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the fountain. These are but drops. God is the ocean. Therefore, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven. Well, my journey is almost complete. Pray that I won't falter, but press on towards the goal which is my upward calling. You have all been so dear to us over so many years, and words fail over how to express our sense of love, mercy, and patience received from you all. Keep on strong in the faith. Nothing else counts. Everything good flows from this, and all we can ever truly enjoy is God himself, our Heavenly Father, faithful Savior, and the Spirit of love. Goodbye, dear friends, until we meet again in a better country. Your friend and brother, Melvin. Won't you pray with me? Father, please will you help us to live like this and to die like this. As we journey through the wilderness of this life, help us to trust in Christ and in Christ alone. We pray this in his precious name, our bread from heaven, our living water, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.